0: I'm AJ Bianco, host of Reflect Ed, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to another edition of Transparency in Teaching, the news edition, with me, Anne Every other week, I'll bring you three news stories I feel shine a light on important happenings that affect our education world. Yeah, they're based on my opinion, but I'd love it if you'd share links to stories you think should be shared. You can leave your links and tell us why your story needs to be shared in the comments section, or record your story and commentary, and maybe we'll include it in our next edition. Today's news stories cover three different stories, The first story is on how mastery learning is now a thing in all 50 states. The second is why the Carnegie unit that has defined learning for 100 years is now obsolete. And I'll show you the money. Well, at least I'll break down how the United States spends it on education. The news begins right after this. To begin with, is sort of an update of the last episode Jen and I did on mastery learning for those of you who tuned in. In that episode, we wondered why this type of evaluation wasn't more widely spread. This news story clarifies the fact that mastery learning is indeed widely spread. In fact, it's now spread across the entire United States as Wyoming just became the final state to approve using mastery learning to replace traditional letter grading. The state superintendent of instruction in Wyoming, Megan Dengerfield, came from a private sector background in the coal, oil, and gas industries. Her experience there helped her cement her view that many students were not prepared for life outside of the classroom. Sharing this perspective helped her get the votes to consider mastery learning as replacement for letter grades. Now, mastery learning is not a new concept. In fact, in 2012, 28 states had some policies addressing competency-based learning. About a decade later, they have all made at least some move to adopt the model. Now, the way states implement mastery learning varies from state to state, ranging from comprehensive policies where the states actually help build capacity in local school districts, to states that are a bit more restrictive on how they want to implement mastery learning. There's a really great interactive map on the Aurora Institute's website that shows each state's progress in adopting mastery learning. I'll leave the link on our website, transparencyandteaching.com, in case you want to play around with that. Now, the Aurora Institute is an organization that is focused on promoting like the best practices to advance educational outcomes, which is why they love mastery learning. They define competency-based education, which is another fancy word for mastery learning, as having the following attributes. Competency-based education allows students to make key decisions about their own learning and it allows them to progress at their own pace. It also is tailored to an individual student's needs and to their learning styles. And it's based on very clear expectations so that parents and students Know exactly what it is they are expected to know by the time they're finished with the lessons. It also relies on meaningful assessments that deliver timely, keyword here being timely, actionable results. Now, you know, I really like this one because the way we currently test is at the end the end of a school year which doesn't really allow teachers the time to course correct before summer starts the annual learning backslide you know students basically forget you know months worth of work by the time they come back to school so the testing that they took at the end of the school year isn't as relevant as it could be so we really do need better coordinated regular testing that lends itself to more prescriptive interventions now you know i'm not saying that we need big multi-choice tests, but we do need ways to measure student growth as we try to ensure that our students are on track to meet the standards. This could be, you know, I'm thinking like project based or some other way to show that learners can take this information that they've gotten from classes and synthesize it into some meaningful project or some meaningful answer to a problem. Something that shows that they can actually use What they've learned, because otherwise, what good is knowing a bunch of stuff if you can't really use it to create anything or solve problems? Anyways, so it's great that everybody recognizes that we need to advance students based on their knowledge and not on how many hours they spend in a classroom. But if this is really to take root, then there will be a need to standardize ways to evaluate learning. I mean, if each state is left to define the qualifications that will determine when a student can move forward, and if there are no clear standards across school districts, I can see a problem for students who are going to apply to college, you know, because colleges need some way to determine which students are properly qualified to be accepted into their institutions. To this point, to graduate from high school, there will have to be an agreed upon way to demonstrate that students have mastered the standards, whatever it is that the powers that be will determine are the standards that every student needs to master. So school leaders are going to have to get together and make these decisions in the first place um, so that students will, you know, know what it is that they're supposed to accomplish by the end of high school. Now, in a related story, our second story focuses on something called the Carnegie unit, which was news to me. Being in education all of the years that I was, I had never heard of a Carnegie unit, and little did I know how important a unit it was to everything that goes on in schools. One of the problems with trying to move to mastery-based learning, like I already said, is how do you measure that learning has happened? Right now schools and universities use this thing called the carnegie unit and this defines how much time is needed to um i don't know consider that a subject is learned i had no idea what a carnegie unit was hey raise your hand if you know what a carnegie unit is uh-huh just what i thought a few edu geeks out there know this but the rest of us here let me try to explain what it is way back in 1906 the higher education people felt that there was no way to actually know what students were being exposed to in high schools. So the Carnegie Foundation took it upon itself to create some norms and expectations that would standardize adequate preparation for higher education. They they didn't want to really dictate what should be taught. So they decided that instead they would use how much time uh, students spent On learning something. They thought that this time thing would be a handy way to, you know, determine if there had been an an adequate amount of time given for learning to occur before applying to college. Now, the Carnegie system measures how much time students spend directly with a teacher with a standard unit requiring 7,200 minutes of instruction, which kind of goes into an hour each day five days a week for 24 weeks, and this gives you one credit in a subject. So that's kind of the baseline of what a Carnegie unit stands for. How they came up with that exactly, I don't know. Like how did they figure it was 7,200 minutes of instruction? Like how did they determine that was enough? That part, I didn't find that out. In any case, if you do, let us know in the comments. A standard diploma In most districts today, still requires 18 to 24 credit hours per class and is exclusively based on seat time. You know, if you think about it at the elementary level, it's all about time spent in class because we just move kids forward regardless of their grades or their ability. You know, this is why I'm getting kids in my seventh grade class that are reading at third and fourth grade level, right? Because we just move them along. Oh, 180 days have gone by. Good. Go to the next grade level. Now, high schools, it's still moving kids forward, but I believe that if they fail a lot, if they get a lot of Fs, they don't get credit for those classes. And that maybe could cancel out their seat time. Last year, now, the Carnegie Foundation Foundation um, announced that they were looking to ditch that time unit and find a more modern measure of student achievement and, you know, which include mastery of subjects. Timothy Knowles, who is the 10th president of the Carnegie Foundation, which he acquired that position in 2021, he believes the Carnegie unit doesn't account for the way people actually learn. Well, wow, what a revelation. As a result, the foundation Just launched what Knowles expects to be a decade long research, practice, and legislative initiative to replace time as the essential measure of learning. You know, 10 years from now, really? Come on, can't we move along a little faster than that? In any case, Knowles believes that the Carnegie unit is hindering learning innovation at scale because until there is some agreement on how to measure knowledge and how much learning is enough, schools are going to have to rely on seat time still to calculate when learning has had enough time to take place. Noel says that we need to figure out how to value and validate what learning has taken place and translate that into a form that both post-secondary schools and employers will understand, right? Because if you don't, you know, we're so used to, you know, graduating from high school with this many units and you get a diploma, but what is that going to mean now to an employer who maybe doesn't understand what mastery learning is? So we're going to have to come up with some standards that everybody can agree upon. The Carnegie Foundation, in order to do this, has established a group of superintendents from the 10 largest city school systems to discuss um, and establish standards of learning that are not based on time or place. In other words, it shouldn't just be learning that takes place in schools. you know, what are other places where we learn? You know? So we need to also start, or this group is also needs to discuss the new roles for teachers and businesses as partners in learning. But still, it is difficult to replace something that is so ingrained in how we define learning, because right now, time is the basis around how school happens it's how we organize classes and how we decide when assessments are timed it's what we decide goes on to a transcript right you have to send your transcripts to colleges it shows how many units you had of certain classes schools get accredited they get their accreditation based on this time thing and also Students get financial aid or who doesn't also based on how many classes they take, how many units they have. So Knowles knows and uh, so do the rest of us that research and neuroscience show that we learn not through just sitting in a seat and having somebody yak at us. We learn through immersive experiences. I'm sure you can think of things that you had, that you've done physically done, been there for, and practiced that have actually taught you more than, you know, listening to somebody tell you about it. We learn from our mentors. and a mentor isn't just a teacher. it could be a business person. it could be a parent, it could be a friend. Um, we learn by involving ourselves in apprenticeships and internships. And we also, you know, we learn from our friends. Think about all the things that your friends have taught you. And most importantly, I think, we learn at variable rates right we don't all learn math in the same at the same time in the same way for example me it took me a lot longer to learn math than other things so you know for me having to move along um to the next math lesson before i'd already learned the one that came before it was probably detrimental to my opinion of myself as a math learner so with this in mind with these things in mind about how learning occurs We need to disconnect the idea that time equals learning, and we need to replace it with a way to demonstrate that a person has the ability to synthesize and use the knowledge they're getting and to be creative and solve problems. Right now, it's up to states to decide how to implement mastery learning. As mastery-based learning grows and is incorporated into our schools, It's going to be really interesting to see how universities interpret students' transcripts from different states when deciding who to accept. You know, here's a little side note to all this. When I was doing all this research into time equals learning, it got me thinking about why 180 days of school? Well, at least that's how many days we have for students in our district. I was trying to add up Carnegie units to see if that worked out, and it didn't. It comes out to around 120 days a year. Now, I could be wrong here because I'm an English teacher and not a math teacher, although I'm fully aware that that is a lame excuse for not being able to do the math. So if you want to do the math and let me know how far off I am, please do. But here is what I did find out. Most schools today have between 170 to 180 days of school. Schools didn't really establish their average or that average until after 1974, when child labor laws were changed and it made it illegal for children under 16 to work. Okay. Now children had a lot more time to spend going to school. Way back in 1890, the average number of school days attended was about 86 because children went to school when it was convenient. Because many of them, they needed to earn a living for their families, or they had childcare responsibilities. Some had to work in factories, others helped on the farm. You know, now that we have these laws that prevent kids from having to go off and do work to support families, or at least we hope that they don't, maybe it's time to rethink how we have our school years arranged. Maybe it's time to ditch the 180 days seat time and start thinking of a different way to make learning happen all year round and at one's own pace. For a really cool, terrific explanation of how we ended up with summer vacation to begin with, there's a PBS News Weekend article that I'll put the link into on our website, transparencyandteaching.com, that explains why this, you know, you probably heard the agrarian theory that farms were the reason we had summer because kids needed to work on the farm. Well, it's really kind of bunk. And if you read this article, it kind of explains it to you. Pretty interesting. Okay. On to our last story today for this edition This story uses an EdWeek article that is outlining how the government and school districts spend money on education. In order to crunch the numbers, they used school district surveys conducted by the United States Census Bureau. So the most recent data available from that is 2021 school year. But it still can give us a pretty accurate idea of how much is going where and to whom. So here's the numbers. Overall, funding for K 12 schools in the United States grew, yay, by $38 billion during the 2020 and 2021 school year. Yay! Well, not so fast, because most of that growth is largely attributed to the infusion of pandemic relief aid that the federal government handed out to districts. And that investment, in case you weren't counting. That investment totaled just shy of $200 billion. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens to this funding now that the pandemic handouts have ceased. You know, I'm, I'm always a little bit skeptical of money that comes from the, or comes in the form of, you know, quote unquote, temporary status, like these pandemic handouts or, you know, school grants that people write. Schools get great things started with these limited funds and then poof, no more money to keep the programs going. And it kind of feels like being teased, you know, look at all these pretty things we have and then like, oh, sorry, money ran out. You know, if a program is worthy enough to get funded, then shouldn't the funding just continue? You know, it's kind of like a waiter taking your dessert plate away before you finish. Okay. Okay. I know I'm ranting let's move on. Together, America spent $809 billion on K-12 schools. Now, this money comes from the combined state, local, and federal sources, like for federal, Title I and um, IDEA, um, the Individuals with Disability Act. And this money is up $30 billion from the previous year. Once again, this number partly relies on those COVID infusions. The shocking thing about this number, to me anyways, is that it's roughly the equivalent to the amount of your tax dollars that the federal government allocates each year just to defense. Priorities, it seems. Okay, this is where I would insert that eye rolling emoji face. Anyways. A portion of the state's education budget that the federal government funds is usually about 7.5%. Most school funding, as you probably know, is a mixture of state aid, about 45% comes from the state, and then the local taxes that are collected, about 44%. But of course, during COVID, the Fed kicked in 10.5%, another 3% higher than normal. Again, what's going to happen when that number isn't around anymore? Schools have also invested in summer programs and tutoring programs using this federal injection of money. If all of that money dries up, will the support programs that the, that it created dry up too? You know, I, I don't think it's possible to undo all the damage that was done when we shut down schools and all the mental health issues that are happening now and all of the support systems that we've used COVID money for. I don't think you can cure all that with a few weeks of summer school or tutoring. Going to take a long time to help people catch up, huh? So I'm kind of wondering if this is going to turn into another dessert plate being removed early. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about per pupil funding. Now, the report said that the average amount spent per K-12 student nationwide is fourteen thousand three hundred and forty-seven. Now that's up from thirteen thousand five hundred in the fiscal year 2020, adjusted for inflation education funding per pupil nationwide has risen about eighteen hundred dollars in the last decade um on the articles web page the ed week article web page you can click on this interactive map and it shows you what each state spends per pupil so on average arizona idaho and utah spend less than ten thousand dollars per student not to state shame but each spent Roughly about $9,600 per student. Now, of course, you have to consider the cost of living in those states and the number of students that those states serve. But on the other end of the spending continuum are Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and Vermont. These states spend over $20,000 per pupil. Most taxpayers now contribute in their states between three to 3.9% of their tax dollars. And that's what goes to state education. So each of us pay those taxes we pay each year to the state three point, you know, somewhere in the 3.3, 3.9% go to pay for our education. But in those higher per pupil spending states, taxpayers actually contribute a greater portion of their tax dollars to education. For example, New York residents pay 4.65% of their taxes, go to education. And Vermont has a whopping 5.3% of their tax dollars go to education. So I don't know, does that just mean that those states have a higher priority for education since people are more willing to spend money on it? I live in California. So this kind of got me interested in what my state spends per pupil. I mean, California politicians are always bragging about how we have the fifth largest economy in the world. So I would suspect that our spending would be in the upper range, you know, of per pupil spending. Well, actually it's right there in the middle. California spends about $14,895 according to the 2020, 2021 census, which is slightly above the average. But then when I cross-checked this number with other sources, I got completely confused because for example um on the one website um educationaldata.org it said that in 2022 california spent 13642 and then in the worldpopulationreview.com per pupil spending by state it listed california spending 12498 in 2023 and then i went and i read the governor's budget summary um for the 2022-23 20, school year and he, in that summary, it said that we're spending 15261 per pupil. And then if you look at the, if it lists the funding, you got to check because sometimes it's including not only California's contribution and local taxes, but it also includes federal funding. In which case, um, according to the California Department of Education budget for 2022-23, 20, 20, We're spending $22,898 per student. So I don't really know what we're spending. So I'm even more confused. I guess I can say we spend less than New York, but more than Alabama. (laughs) Much of this interpretation, of course, has to do with whether the amount listed is including federal monies or the number of students, blah, blah, blah. In any case, if anyone out there can help me figure out the correct number, please let me know. I'll put all the links that I use to find these different amounts on our websites and you can do the research and the math. Okay, by far the largest cost of education is paying teachers salaries and paying for your benefits. This takes 82% of K-12 funding. That's the biggest chunk of funds in school budgets. Teachers cost approximately 11000 per student on average nationwide. Okay. So I know a lot of us complain, man, those people at the district and those school administrators are sucking up the money. Why they they shouldn't be making all that money. We should be, but actually they're only about 7.5% of the K-12 funding. So it's not them. It's us. Finally, College students aren't the only ones swimming in debt. No, our school districts owe $20.8 billion to pay off the financing of building construction, of renovations, and other longer-term projects. This is 2.5% of America's overall investment in K-12 schools, so it doesn't sound like a lot, but $20 billion, if you think about it, could go a long way. As of fiscal year 2021, America's schools collectively bore $533 billion in debt obligations yet to be paid. You know, these are all those bond issues and the like that voters and politicians use to get bigger projects funded. You remember that slogan. It's for the children. Yes, our children who will still be paying down this debt long after we've retired to the school in the sky. Okay, so that's it for this episode of Education News from Transparency in Teaching. Let me know what you think of these episodes and don't forget to share links to newsworthy education stories you find. So until next time, this is Anne saying, may all your news be good news happy summer.